So tonight we're going to continue on with our Acts series, and we need a really, really, really big welcome for Andrew Hudson. Thanks, Thanks Rick. Thank you. Well, uh, I will admit, when I saw Penny walk in tonight, it's like all the nervousness just went right out the door for me. Because I knew, I knew that when you guys go home and drive, you're not going to talk about anything I say. You're just going to talk about how great it was to see Penny. Right? It says... And uh, it says up here on the board, remember they didn't come here to see you, they came here to see Jesus. And I, I wish I had a post-it note and a Sharpie marker, because I would say... Remember, they didn't come here to see you. They came here to see P-E-N-N-Y. That's what I would... Just tonight. Just tonight. So, No, but how, I'm curious. How many of you guys uh, got really interested in watching the Olympics over the last month? Raise your hand. Okay, a, a good amount of you. How many of you guys would say it was borderline obsession? Like, you are good. You make me feel so much better. I felt so uh, just just totally into everything that was going on in the Olympics. I, we were, I felt like it was on our TV 24-7. Um, we were spending, we were staying up way too late. I felt like I was just tired, tired for two and a half weeks straight, just, just watching everything. Our kids were getting into it all, and it was just a lot of fun, a lot of fun to, be, to, to watch, uh, you know, what only happens once every four years. But, um, you know, I'm always just so impressed with these athletes that just train so hard, and, and they don't get a lot of a lot of them don't get a lot of recognition most of the time. Um, but in particular, I'm really impressed by the athletes, um, like a guy named Ashton Eaton. It, have you heard of Ashton Eaton? Did anybody follow him? He was, a, he was the American uh, U.S. Um, who won, he was the U.S. American who won the gold medal in the decathlon. And, um, and I'm just so impressed by him because he can kind of like do it all. Like, it's really impressive when you have an athlete who isn't just good at one thing, but they're good at just about everything. And so if you want to throw that first picture, that this is Ashton Eaton, um, and this was him running the hurdles. And so if you're not familiar with the decathlon, it's 10 different events that they have to compete in in just two days. So they do five events the first day and five events the next day. And literally, you know, Ashton Eaton might run the hurdles and become a hurdler, and then an hour and a half later, he might throw the shot put, which is this next picture. Totally different skill to be able to do that. And then maybe two hours later, two hours later, he might be, he's going to become a high jumper, and he's going to have to do that. How you do that, I don't know. I, I tried that once, I think, in seventh grade and realized it was not for me. Yeah, two feet off the ground, I couldn't make it. But... Um, but, uh, but I'm just so impressed, you know, that he is able to do all these different things. And he, he has the nickname, the world's greatest athlete, because he is able to be adaptable and flexible and just do it all. You know, we've been in this series in the book of Acts, and we're going to be looking at chapter 17. And um, recently, it seems like we've been following the story of Paul, who Paul is. And, and, and what we're going to notice today, and especially in this story with Paul, is Paul seems to be able to become, kind of like Ashton Eaton, all these different things. He's able to become all these different things in order to win people to the gospel. Not to win a gold medal, but to win people to the gospel. And he even t says this, that he intentionally is doing this. In 1 Corinthians 9, this is what it says. 
This is Paul speaking. He says, To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law I became like one not having the law, though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. Paul becomes all things so that he can relate to the people that he comes in contact with in a way that they might understand and be able to respond to Jesus. And we're going to see all throughout chapter 17 that Paul is able to be flexible and adaptable in order to evangelize the gospel. So let's pray and then we'll get into it. So Lord, I just, I just thank you for your presence here, Lord, and worship. And I just pray that as we look at this story in Scripture, that we're going to see this amazing story of Paul becoming like all things. Will you show us how this story, Lord, today in 2016 is relevant to us? That we might be equipped to share the good news. But power on my words, Lord. Holy Spirit, come and be present with us. Be present with us. Amen. So if you want to go ahead and click or open or whatever, however you get, use your Bible nowadays, to Acts 17. Let me give you a little bit of kind of background on what's happening. Last week, Michael talked on, uh, on 16 and talked a lot about how Paul was in the city of Philippi and was evangelizing in Philippi. I'm going to spend most of my time talking about the latter half of 17, but I want to kind of tell you a little bit what happens more in the beginning half. So in the beginning, Paul goes with his buddies Timothy and Silas, and they go to this town of Thessalonica, and they're going into the Jewish synagogue, and they're telling people about Jesus. And the, the Jews there, they do not really respond very well to this idea. They basically kind of run, run them out of town. They have to leave in the middle of the night for their safety. And so they go to a town called Berea. And in Berea, the Jews are they're kind of open to the gospel. But the Jews in Thessalonica, they followed them there. And they basically form a mob and Paul has to make a decision. And Paul has, decides that he's going to have to split up from his buddies for just their safety. And he goes off to Athens all by himself, basically. So that's where we're going to kind of pick up the story in verse 14. So this is what it says, starting in verse 14. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast. But Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. And those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens... And they left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. When Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he, so he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And then they took him and they brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, 
where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All of the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So the first thing that we noticed is that Paul is in Athens by himself. He's in Athens all alone. His, his buddies, Timothy and Silas, his compadres, his support group that he could rally around and encourage him, they're not there. He may be the only Christian believer in the entire city of Athens. And he, and he gets there and he's, ups, he's distressed, it says. And other versions say um, that he's upset or maybe even infuriated by all the idols that he sees in the city. And we have to remember that Athens is in, in, in Greece was a major center of polytheism. You know, lots of gods were worshipped in Athens. You know, I can imagine Paul would be walking along the streets and he would just see temples to Athena and all these statues and artifacts and just even on the buildings themselves in the architecture, you know, memory, or things about Zeus and Hermes and Aphrodite and all these different gods. And he's there all by himself. But I want us to notice what he does not do. He does not cower and think, since I'm all alone, I guess God's not going to do anything here. He doesn't cower and hide and think, you know, I guess they're just not ready yet. There's just too much competition. There's just too much going on. There's too many idols. There's too, it's just too overwhelming. Athens isn't ready for the gospel yet. And, or I should at least wait. I should at least wait until my buddies get here. Because then I'll have some support. No, even though he's alone, he still engages. He goes into the synagogue. He goes into the marketplace and he starts to reason with them each day talking about the gospel. So the first point I want to make here is that Paul becomes like a soloist. You know, if you ever, if you ever seen a musical, you know, there's always a lot of singing musicals, obviously. But, but there's always points throughout the musical where it's, Everybody else stops singing, and it's like one person steps into the spotlight. One person starts to, to sing completely all on their own. And, and, no, and, and, and they don't just start, they don't panic. They don't think, what's going on? Why is nobody else singing? Should I just step back and run off stage, you know? No, they don't. They know that the director has ordained this time for them to sing with everything they have. And I believe that Paul understood. I believe that Paul understood that there were going to be times in his walk with God that he was going to be alone. And, he, and God was not saying, hold back. God was actually saying, it's okay. I've, this is a, a God-appointed time. You know, God, the director of the universe, has ordained this time for the Athenians to hear the gospel. And Paul steps into it all by himself. And I firmly believe that there are times in our Christian walk, in our life with Jesus, that we're going to be put in situations. We're going to be put in particular settings where we are going to feel like we're the only Christian influence in the room. You know, maybe it's at work, in your department, at your office. You feel like, man, am I the only one who thinks this, believes this? Maybe it's in your family. You know, some of you, some of you I know, maybe you're the first person in your family 
to become a Christian and you go to extended family events and reunions and you feel like the odd one out and you know they're all kind of thinking you're a little weird. We are a little weird, aren't we? That's okay. I'm okay with that. Um, you know, maybe you're a student and at the lunch table, you know, you feel like you're the only Christian voice or on your athletic team, you're the only Christian voice. And and there's a danger in thinking that God must not be in this place then right now. I, must, I have to hide what I believe. I have to hide my faith. There's a danger of kind of, of holding back, of not talking about God, not talking about our relationship with Christ. There's just too many obstacles. There's too many barriers. There's too many idols to overcome. But in reality, God, God is doing something. He's on the move because he's put you there. He's put you there. He might be using you to catalyze a major change in that group of people. He, um, he might be, amen, that's right. He might be. You know, and of course it's with discernment and wisdom. We want to step into that. But, but I believe that God might be calling you and me. I know he's going to call you and me at times in our life to do what he did, to what Paul did, to step in the spotlight, to share the gospel through his words, through his actions, and to not always wait. Imagine if Paul would have not engaged in the conversation. The Athenians may have never, it may have been a long time before the Athenians came to know Christ. You know, someone once said to me when they found out I was starting to go to the vineyard, somebody I cared deeply about, said, now, uh, they said, now don't become one of those Christians that just starts talking all the time about your faith. You know, they, and this, this is someone dear to me, but to her, her faith was private. It was between her and God. And with all due respect to her, the private, personal gospel, the gospel that's just between me and God, that is not the gospel at all. That's not the gospel of Jesus. The gospel does not ask or hope to be shared, it demands to be shared. And as followers of Christ, there are going to be times in our life where we're going to have to step into that solo. We're going to have to step into it with faith and trust that God will be with us. And we'll see here next that God is definitely with Paul. He's definitely with Paul. So let's look at the next couple of verses. In verse 22, it says, Then Paul stood up in this meeting of the Areopagus, and he said to People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walk around and I look carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are not ignorant of the very thing that you worship. This is what I'm going to proclaim to you. So what, what is Paul talking about here? What's he doing? Well, Paul has become like a detective. Yeah, he's become like a He's gone around Athens and he's looking for clues with how he connect, can connect with these people. With how he can connect with these people. And even though he's upset, maybe even infuriated about these idols, he doesn't show it on the outside. He doesn't come out just like yelling. He's trying to make a connection with them. He's trying to find a way to start a conversation. And he goes around and he sees this altar and it says, literally says on the altar, to an unknown God. I don't know about you, but when I, the first time I read that, I thought, that's weird. Like, why would anybody take the time to make an altar to a God they don't know? 
right? That's weird. Well, you have to. I, so I did a little bit of studying, and I, the story behind the altar is, is fascinating. So about the legend in the story goes like this. About 600 years B.C., there was a terrible plague that went through Athens, and people were dying. People were dying, and people were, they were offering, making, put, giving up offerings to all their idols, all their gods, and it wasn't breaking. It wasn't going away. And so some of the leaders, they went to a kind of a wise Greek prophet. He wasn't Jewish. He wasn't, well, he obviously wasn't Christian yet. It was 600 years prior to Christ, but he wasn't a Jewish prophet. They went to this man named Epimenides, and Epimenides was, a, was just kind of a wise man in their culture. And they said, Epimenides, what, what do we do? What do we do? To, how are we going to stop this plague? And Epimenides said, I want you to take some of your sheep and I want you to take them on this one particular hill. And at feeding time, I want you to watch them. And I want you to watch them and I want you to see if there's any sheep that choose not to eat. And sheep are pretty particular in their schedule. So when it's eating time, they're going to eat. And when it's time to sleep, they're going to sleep. And lo and behold, some of the sheep actually lay down to sleep and to rest. And so Epimenides said, I want you to take those particular sheep and I want you to build an altar because there is a new God. There's an unknown God. He's not new, but unknown to the Athenians. And he's going to reveal himself to you. And so they built this altar, the same altar that we're talking about here. And they sacrificed the sheep on that altar. And like that, the plague stopped. People got well. Disease stopped spreading. And they have been waiting for 600 years to know who that God is. 600 years. Their, their people, their ancestors have been waiting to know who that God is. And Paul is saying, I know who that God is. I know who that God is because the only God who could do anything like that is my God. The only God that has any power or authority over disease like that is my God. That's Yahweh. That's the Lord Jesus. That's the creator of the universe. Let me tell you about that God. And so it's amazing how he does this, how he, he, he's going around, like I said, and he's looking, he sees this, and he's, he's using these clues to start a conversation. And, and we're pretty, it's very likely that Paul knew this story because Paul was very familiar with Epimenides because he quotes him a couple times. In fact, in verse 28, later on, we haven't got to it yet, he's actually going to quote Epimenides and say, which says, for in him we live and move and have our being. And he actually quotes him again in a totally different matter in Titus 1.12. So Paul is very familiar with, with this guy, Epimenus, but he becomes like a detective, and he's putting the clues together about this unknown God, and he's solving the mis, minis, blah, 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 mystery, yeah, there we go, mystery, right before their eyes. He's helping them connect the dots of their own personal experiences and saying, you know, you know this part of your history? That, that, that's God. He's pointing them to God. Too often, I think, we, we don't see God in what he's doing in our lives. We're human beings. We're so, we so easily miss what God's doing in our lives. So here's a question for us to think about. Here's a question. Do we really believe that God is still in the business of becoming known? Do we really believe that? Do we live our lives in a way that shows that we really believe that God wants everyone to come to know him 
even in 2016. To know and have a relationship with him. Are there people in our lives that we've given up on? Are there people in our lives that we have been praying for? Andrew, you don't understand. I've been praying for this person for years. Years, Andrew. Years. It ain't going to happen. Andrew, you don't have, know how many times I have tried to share my story with this person. How I have tried to clue them into what God is doing in their lives. You don't, you don't, you don't know. It's just not going to work. Or, or, Andrew, their life, their choices that they're making, and they've hit rock bottom, Andrew, so many times. Every time I think they're going to turn and realize that how much they need God, and they never do it. Are there people in our lives where we would, if we're honest, we would say we, that we've given up on them. But can I remind us that God never, ever gives up on anyone. He never does. And he has not and he will not give up on anyone. So how, how dare we, how dare I think that I could have the right to give up on someone? Now, we are called to be patient and faithful like our God is patient and faithful. God calls each and every one of us to do the same thing that Paul does here, to become like Holy Spirit-led detectives and help the people that we come in contact with, the people we rub shoulders with, the people we have influence over, realize how God is being active in their lives, to help them see those clues that we so easily overlook. Last year, I had a had a co she's still my coworker. I didn't have her just last year. But last year, my coworker, her name's Jean. She uh, teaches across the hall from me in my fourth grade class, and um, she she was going through a really really hard time. Her brother, down in North Carolina, was in a horrible motorcycle accident, and he wasn't. They weren't even sure if he was going to make it, and um, he uh, he ended up making it quite well. But at the time, he had um, his like I think they had to rebuild his whole right side of his rib cage, it was just like pulverized. And his lungs weren't, he wasn't able to breathe on his own for a really long time. Um, but when, when she first found out about it and was just so upset, she, you know, she pretty much got in her car and just started heading towards North Carolina. And she said that on her way down, she was just upset and, and, and trying not to cry too much. And she looked up and on the freeway in the clouds, she saw this, a picture, almost like a painting in the clouds of Jesus. And she said, it was so clear. I pulled over, pulled over the car on the freeway, which was probably not very smart. But I pulled over the car on the freeway, and I found a scrap piece of paper, and I started to draw this sketch as best as I could. And she said, and I got down there, and I saw my brother, and I saw how bad it was, and how scared I was, and how scared he was. And I just, I just didn't know what to do. And she said, a few days in, of being down there, I, I found myself going to a church, and, and Jean would be the first one to tell you she doesn't spend a lot of time in churches. She said, I went to a church, and I walked in the front door. And right in the front door, that same painting, that same picture of Jesus that I saw in the clouds. And she, she said, I just started weeping. I just couldn't stop crying for days. I couldn't stop crying for days. She said, when I got back to Ohio, I couldn't wait to tell you, Andrew. And this was a pretty easy one. This didn't take a lot of digging around and looking for clues, detective work. But I just said, I was so, it was such a, a joy to just say, Gene, I, 
I just, it's so, it seems so clear to me that God is just trying to tell you that he's with you, that he sees you, that he sees your brother, that he loves you, that he wants you to know you can come to him, that he's with you. You know, we get to, we get to do that for people. It's not always that crazy of a story, but we get to do that for people. We get to point things and encourage them and challenge them and say, it seems like God is doing something with that. Paul goes on, he continues to give his audience this kind of short sermon, this speech. And in verse 24, this is what he starts and he says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands, and if he needed any, as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. And from one man he made all the nations that they would inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. And though he's not far from any of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. There's, he's quoting Epimenides there. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring... We should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made up by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. So Paul's doing some interesting things in this speech. I know that was a little bit long. But he's very careful in thinking about who his audience is. Who his audience is. Back in verse 18, it said that a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. So Paul is very intentional to kind of address both of these groups to call a response out of them. See, the Stoics, the Stoics were a group of people who believed in a few different things. They believed in virtue, in responsible living, but they also believed in this idea of providence. And by providence, I mean that God, God or gods, they were divinely guiding us. So when Paul, when Paul says in verse 26, when he says this, from one man he made all the nations that they would inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history, in the boundaries of their lands. What Paul is doing here is he's making a positive connection with them. He's saying, hey, you believe in this? Let me tell you that my God does have, you know, God does have a time and a space and a place for you to live. And that the Stoics would have heard this and they would have thought, okay, I, I can jive with this guy. I'm, I'm okay. Well, this is good so far. And then he even piles on the compliments even more because he quotes a Stoic philosopher, Eratus, when he says, um, in verse 28, some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. That was actually said by Eratus. So the Stokes would have been listening to Paul, and they would have been thinking, yeah, I dig this guy. I could get into this. You know, I want to hear more. They're getting a, they're, they would be giving him a very positive response back. But the other group of philosophers, those, the Epicureans, the Epicureans, they would have probably likely had a very negative initial response. Because what Paul was saying was really challenging some of their beliefs. 
See, the Epicureans believed in, they believed in pleasure, that life was about just enjoying it. More specifically, they believed in trying to avoid pain at all costs. And because of that, they didn't believe in a judgment. They didn't believe that God or gods were going to judge them. And they didn't believe in a resurrection. So when, when Paul starts talking about how in verse 31 that he has set a day when he will judge the world, they would have been like, whoa, 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 whoa. This doesn't, I don't, I don't like that. that. This doesn't fit how my worldview. That doesn't fit what I think about God. And then when he goes on to talk about the resurrection from the dead and raising somebody from the dead, they, they would have been the ones who were sneering in the crowd. Now, what, why, what has Paul done here? Why is he doing this? Well, he's become like a mathematician. Do you guys remember in math, probably more like elementary school, maybe that's why my mind goes to simple math and being a fourth grade teacher, but um, in elementary school, do you remember learning about number lines and how there'd be a line and, and it would be marked off in all these dashes and at the center of the line was zero. And then off to the right, it would go positive numbers, right? Positive one, positive two, positive three, on to infinity. And off to the, the other side, it would go negative one, negative two, negative three, and off to infinity. So what Paul's trying to do is he's trying to get some sort of response from them, positive or negative. He honestly doesn't care initially because he knows if he gets that kind of a response, it's going to make the conversation keep going. It's going to keep going, whether they're agreeing with him or they want to, you know, argue with him. But if, 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 if a listener is at zero if they're indifferent to the gospel, then he knows he, that they're not going to hear what he has to say. It's not going to sink in. It's not going to sink in. So, so he's okay with getting into a little bit of a debate here with some people. He's okay with that. Um, a couple weeks ago, I'm just to give you a little example of this. A couple weeks ago, Sarah and I celebrated 10 years of marriage. So yeah, it was... And flown by, absolutely flown by. And she didn't make me say that, I promise. It really has just flown by. And we decided back nine months ago, we were going to take a little trip. We went to Captiva Island. It was awesome off the coast of Florida. We had a great time. We took no children. That was the best part. I love my kids to death. But that, was, that was awesome to be there. And we're, we're, um, we're driving to the airport. We're going to fly down there. And um, we're, we're praying for the trip. We're just praying. And, and we're praying for different things, safe travels, all that kind of stuff. Our kids would have a great time with their grandparents. And, and all of a sudden, Sarah prays, God, I just pray that if you would have divine appointments for us, Lord, that, that you would just, you know, lay those out before us. And I just, I'll be honest. I looked right over her and gave her the dirtiest look. And she was so filled with the Holy Spirit, she had no idea what was going on. And I, the, my first thought was, you did not just pray that. We're going on vacation. I don't want to see or talk to another person besides you for the next five days, let alone have serious God conversations. So we get on the airplane. There's three seats. She and I have two. There's an empty one. Praying nobody else sits down, you know? I'm kind of a tall guy. I want the space for my legs. Darn it. Gentleman in about his mid maybe late 50s, sits down. After about 10 or 15 minutes, I realize I'm going to be sitting next to this guy, you know, for a long time. He's going to be smelling my food and all that, you know. I should probably introduce myself. So, you know, I do the polite thing. Hey, my name's Andrew. What's your name? And, you know, tells me his name. And we ask 
you know, some small talk. What do you do for a living? You know, he, he tells me that he, he runs a business and builds warehouses. I thought, well, that's, 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 a, that's probably a pretty big job. And, uh, and so then he, he does the polite thing. He reciprocate, reciprocates the question. So what do you do for a living? I said, well, I'm a fourth grade teacher. I teach science and social studies. And then I felt God say, tell him you're a pastoral intern at the vineyard. Yeah, do it. So I said, oh, and I'm, I'm an intern at our church at the vineyard. And I just stopped talking. And I just waited. And it got real awkward. I just didn't say anything. And it probably wasn't really that long. It just felt like a really long time. But then I hear him kind of take a deep breath and, and he goes, so teaching, that's got to be really rewarding. And I said, yeah. No, no, I didn't. I said, yeah, actually, it is. Teaching's awesome. I get to work with kids every day. It really is a blessing. And, you know, in that conversation, I thought, we'd pray, Sarah prayed that prayer. I thought for sure this was going to be a big God moment. And, and he was pretty indifferent. I, you know, when, when he didn't respond to that point, I felt like God said, it's okay, Andrew. It's okay. You're planting seeds. It's, it's not like it's not doing anything. But, but now's not the time. Now's not the time to force feed the gospel down his throat. You know, I think too often we think we have to come with a sledgehammer and just pound it into people. But God is calling us to, to use much finer tools, to be much more aware of where people are at, to be listening. Are they, are they really positive and open to the gospel? Are they negative? And maybe we can kind of help them get to the positive. You know, if he, would have, if he would have been really interested in that and asked me about the church or asked me about my experiences, we could have had a great conversation. Even if he would have been a little negative. Even if, you know, if he would have gotten upset. You know, I've I got to be honest, I just, I just don't know how anybody could, could, could do that. How can you spend your time in a place like that? You know, I don't know what I, you know, I, I used to believe that maybe there was a God. But I, you know, when my son got sick years ago, when my son got sick, and I prayed and prayed and prayed, and my son died. I'm, I made a, a point right there to say, I'm, I'm confident there's, there's no God. There's no loving God, at least that. You know, if he would have, if he would have said something like that, then I, I could have, I could have had a, a really gentle, hard conversation, but I could have said, you know, I'm really sorry about your son. I don't know, I don't know why. God didn't save him. But I, but I do know God knows what you're going through. Because God knows what it's like to lose a son. And we could have had a great conversation about Jesus. And maybe I could have been a part of something where I helped flip him to the other side and be open, open more. But when, but when he was indifferent, when he was at zero, I knew it was okay. It was okay to let it go. We talked about lots of other things and made more small talk and, and it was great. And I prayed for him inside my head a lot and have since that day. But, but I just, I, we have to be good at figuring this out, how we can read people. How we can read people. And, um, and I think God's going to call us to, 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 he wants to bless us to be able to do that well. He's gonna, I think he's going to send the Holy Spirit to help us learn how to do that better. Um, second to last point here. Paul becomes like a historian. Paul becomes like a historian. What do historians do? 
historians study events of the past, right, to understand the past. They look for evidence to understand what actually happened in history. And unlike philosophers, like a lot of his audience, the Stoics, the Epicureans, they like to contemplate theories and talk about ideas. But historians, they base their, their fact, their, their truth on things that have been proven, that actually happened. And Paul, in his speech, in verse 31, he, it's really subtle, and you don't catch it in the English. But he does this really interesting thing. In verse 31, he says this. He says, he, referring to God, has given proof of this that to everyone by raising him, talking about Jesus, from the dead. This word proof is actually the, word, the Greek word piston or pistis. And it's, it's, um, it occurs 227 times in the New Testament. And every other time in the New Testament that this word occurs, it's translated faith. This is the only time it's translated proof. So what is Paul doing here? Well, Paul is saying, he's saying that our faith is not just a theory. It's not just an idea. It's actually been proven. It actually happened. It actually occurred. Jesus actually lived a blameless, perfect life. He actually died on the cross for our sins. He actually resurrected. And he, he revealed himself to over 500 people in over a month and a half time span. You know, there's a lot of people in the world today that have a lot of different opinions about God. A lot of different theories about what God is like or should be like, or ideas of who God is. But our faith in Jesus is not based on our opinions or our wishful thinking. It's not based on our emotions or our feelings that can come and go and ebb and flow, it's based on proven, a proven historical event. So when we are in places of doubt, when we are in places where we don't feel God, when our circumstances are confusing, we, we, we can lean on this truth. We can lean on this truth that Jesus really did do these things. And this will keep our heads on straight. It'll keep us on the right path that God has laid before us. And we become like historians. The last point is simply this, and most importantly, Paul is becoming like Jesus. He's becoming like Jesus. You know, we are called to follow Paul's example as he followed Jesus. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul tells us this. He says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. That's what we're doing. That's all we're doing. That's what we're dedicating our lives to. You know, may we become all things to all people so that by all possible means we might save some for the sake of the gospel. Amen? Amen. Why don't you go ahead and stand? Worship team, if you want to come on up. I want to invite a few of you forward tonight to get prayer. I want to encourage you to come forward and get prayer. You know, 
I have a few specific things that I, I think, but if God stirred something up in you, if he was tapping you on the shoulder and you realized it wasn't your neighbor, you know, if he was knocking at your door of your heart, can I just be a detective here and tell you that's a pretty good clue that God wants to do something in you. He wants to encourage you, he wants to fill you, he wants to equip you, he wants to do something in you. If there's anything, anything I said, I just start coming forward now. Start coming forward now for prayer. If anything I said did that. I also realized today that, that maybe for some of you, especially if you're visiting or you're newer to, to coming to church, or maybe you've been away from church for a long time, that maybe you realize tonight that God has been leaving you clues for a while now. That he's been leaving you clues for a while that he's pursuing you, that he loves you. And maybe you've known about God, but you've never really known God. I want to invite you to come forward and get prayer to start a journey with Jesus, to start a life with him. And I, there's a couple other things too. I, I, had a, I was praying for a few things and I felt like God said, I got, a, I got some sprinkles over here for a few people and I got some sprinkles over here for a few other people. But I got buckets full, buckets full of water for this next thing. And that is, I felt like God said, there's, I, want a lot, I got a lot of people that I want to pour out the spiritual gift of evangelism. And you know, when we hear that word, we go, uh-oh. No, that's all right. How about the gift of encouragement? I'll take that one. You know what? But, but the truth is, there's this, there's this fear because we think that if we have the gift of evangelism, that that means that we're going to have to use it. Guess what? You're, we're supposed to be evangelizing. We're spo- that's part of it. That's part of what it means. If you're a Christian, that's part of the gig. And, it, and, and, and here's what I felt like God said. When you have a gift for something, a spiritual gift for something, it takes what is normally hard and stressful and challenging and it makes it easy. When you see somebody who has a spiritual gift for something, they don't think it's hard. It just flows out of their excess of the Holy Spirit moving through them. And I just felt like God said, that's what I want to do. I want to take what is hard for people, sharing your story, sharing who Jesus is, sharing your relationship with God, and I want to bless it, and I want to dump buckets full of the Holy Spirit on you to just receive the gift of evangelism. And what's the danger if you get it? It's what you're supposed to do anyways, right? It's what we're supposed to do anyways. So if that's you, I want to encourage you to come forward for prayer. And the last thing, last thing is when I when I made that point towards the beginning about feeling like you're going solo in a particular setting maybe it's work or your family or whatever you feel like you're going solo I just want to encourage you to come get prayer because that's exhausting I know it is I know it's it's challenging it it can be frustrating at times but I want to encourage you to get prayer and I especially felt, I think that it's for everybody but I especially felt like that was for people who you're, you, you feel like you're raising your kids in your, in your Christian faith all by yourself. Maybe you're a single parent. Maybe your spouse is not actively following Jesus, but you feel like you're doing it kind of on your own. You're kind of doing it solo. And I want to encourage you to come and get prayer. Maybe you're a grandparent 
Maybe you're a grandparent and, you're grand, and you feel like you're the only Christian influence in your grandkids' life. I would encourage you to come, get, come forward for get prayer. And, and of course, as always, if you're sick, if you're in pain, we wanna pray for you. We wanna pray for you. We wanna pray that the God, creator of the universe would heal you, would come for you, would be with you. So go ahead and start to come forward for prayer if, if any of those things apply to you. And, and guys pray for guys and girls pray for girls. And, And we'll close in a little bit here.
you're getting prayer, just continue to receive what God has for you. Continue to receive it with open hands, with an open heart. We have a good God who loves us, who, who wants to give us good gifts, who wants to encourage us, wants to remind us of how much He loves us. For those of us in our seats, like I, I pray, Lord, that you would, you would continue to show us what it means to follow you, to become like you, Jesus. And as we stumble through that and as we fail, that we can be forgiven and know that quickly, that we can repent, that we can be encouraged. You know, Paul, Paul was an amazing man, but he was still a man. He wasn't superhuman. He was just a man who knew what it was like to be fully led by the Holy Spirit, committed and committed to it. Lord, would you teach us, Lord? Would you teach us, Lord, how to do that step by step for all the days of our lives? All the days of our lives. Lord, we just ask for your favor and blessing. We ask for your fruit. We ask that, I ask that people would have amazing stories to tell next week. That you would supernaturally just bring the people in their lives to you. That, that, that they would be able to clue into what you're doing. Just you send your Holy Spirit to be with us. Just pray that in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, amen.